prophecy given 700 years before um, the, the birth of Christ that introduces us to a king with four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And last week we unpacked this beautiful name, Wonderful Counselor, and we saw that Jesus was and is wonderful in his character, wonderful in his counsel, and wonderful in his compassion. And this morning we come to the name Mighty God. I want you just to stop with me for a second, and I, I want to just at, lay this question before you. When you think of the name Jesus, so when you think of the name Jesus, what's the first image that comes into your mind? Is it a baby lying in a manger in swaddling clothes? Is it Jesus teaching disciples or large crowds? Is it Jesus maybe turning over tables in a temple and taking a whip and um, getting people the bad people out, the money changers out? Is it Jesus healing people in amazing ways? Is it Jesus' power over demons or nature? Is it Jesus hanging on the cross? Is it Jesus ascending up into heaven? And here's what I know. When most people think about heaven, or at least most of us, or think of Jesus, excuse me, we think so, or we think of him in fleshly form. So we think of Jesus in the flesh, and to a large degree, that's completely understandable given our frame of re reference, meaning that many, if not most, of the thoughts that we have concerning Christ pertain to his life on earth or his life in the flesh. Also, most everything that we have ever or will ever know has a beginning and an end. So therefore, um, we often think about Christ in that picture of his life here on earth. Everything has a beginning and an end of course, except for God, which is why it's so important during this season for us to not only see Jesus lying in a manger, but also to see him far um, beyond that, far back in the past and into the future. And I think, I, I pray that we can use this precious time together during this season to reflect deeply on the fact that Jesus was and is holy God and he is holy man. 100% God, 100% man, and only when we dwell in the majesty of Christ in that way can we begin to have our minds see and understand and our hearts feel the true extent of what Christ gave up for us, what he left for our sake. And so when we think about Jesus, not only is he the wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God. And let me just say this this morning, oh, how we need a mighty God. We need a God who is Mighty, we need a God who is powerful enough to endure temptation while at the same time rejecting sin. We need a God who is powerful enough that can crush sin, but who is also passionate enough not to crush us. We need a God who is powerful enough to take the penalty of our sin upon the cross, powerful enough to endure the rejection of his Father and the wrath of God being poured out upon himself. We need a God powerful enough to walk through sin um, and to walk through death and the grave and to walk out on the other side. And thankfully, we have all of that and more in Jesus Christ. We have all of that and more in him. And I, I love the words of the late pastor, Adrian Rogers, who said this. This little baby that was upon the straw is the mighty God of Genesis 1. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and learned to walk is the one from whose fingertips sun sprang and oceans dripped. 
He is the mighty God, the little boy playing with the shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree and every hill and every mountain. He is the mighty God. We have some people today who'd like to take the deity from the Lord Jesus. I wonder, he says, what they're going to do with Isaiah 9, 6, where he is called the mighty God. So of the four names of Jesus found in Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This one, mighty God, is the one that the world, unbelievers, despise the most. They despise this. And what I mean by that is this. The world is oftentimes willing to accept Jesus' baby in a manger, right? He's cute. He's cuddly. He's unassuming. He's completely needy. He's completely dependent. We'll take that Jesus because that Jesus is no threat to our sin, our selfishness, or our pride. So Jesus in a manger is one thing. Jesus as mighty God is quite another what I want us to do in our time together today is to look in awe at this prophecy of our mighty God, Jesus as the mighty one. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we recognize God's word. We're just going to look at that verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6 together. Whether in your Bibles or on the screen, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, speak to us by your word through your spirit. Oh, Jesus, the mighty one, we pray that you would work mightily. Lord, across this room, work mightily, Father, through, Lord, even homes of those who are watching as we speak or who will watch. Lord, work mightily. Jesus, have your way. Jesus, have your way. In your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So the name Mighty God conjures up warfare and battleground imagery. And it's interesting to note that that Hebrew word, Gabor, not only does it mean mighty God, it could literally also mean, get this, hero God. So it can mean mighty God or hero God, which is quite interesting because we as sinful individuals, we have a way of taking this book and making it about us. As, you know, we become the heroes of the story. Um, what does this have to do with us? How does it speak to me? All of these things, we become the center of this book. And the reality of the way God intended it, he's the center of this book. He's the hero of this book, and he is the hero of every story in this book. So God is the hero of every story in the Bible. If that upsets you, then take it up with him. I'm just the messenger. But God is the hero. He is the one. And all of the hero tendencies find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the king with four names, who is the warrior mighty God. And before we unpack the reality of this name, mighty God, I want to once again place the context of this prophecy before us. If you remember last week, the year was 730 B.C. So over 700 years before Christ would come, Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was struggling with the reality that Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had joined together in an alliance, and they were in the process of attacking Judah, the southern kingdom. In the midst of this, the nation of Judah was at a low point, and Ahaz had a decision to make. 
Now, he had three options. Option number one, he could make an alliance with Syria and Israel. So he could make an alliance with them. Um, this, this is why the kings of Israel and, and uh, Syria were actually invading Judah at the time. Because if you know anything about what was happening here, there was this massive, incredible nation called Assyria. They were the world power at the time. And in Israel and Syria's mind, if we attack Judah, they will have to surrender to us. We will take all of their warriors and we will come against Assyria. So the king, Ahaz, could have joined an alliance with Syria and with, with Israel in this moment. But here's the problem. He would not have been equal. He would not have been king. He would have joined this alliance by the end of the spear and he would have lost his kingship. So option number two for him now becomes this. Join Assyria. Assyria, they're the baddest people on the block. They have more soldiers than any other nation. In fact, when we read Isaiah, at one time, 185,000 soldiers are taken out in one battle of Assyria. They have a lot going on. So how do you conquer an enemy that is greater than you, more powerful than you? You join them. So that was an option for King Ahaz. Now, it had its cost. Um, he would have to give himself over to Assyria, but he would still be king. Now, he would be servants of Assyria, but he would keep his kingdom. He would have to pay a little bit, but all would somehow, and, and for a little bit of time, be well. So option number one, join, join uh, Israel and Syria. Option number two, join Assyria. Or option number three, get this, trust God. Trust God. Now, that sounds like a good option, right? Sounds like a pretty good option for us. Trust God, yet it's a lot harder to do when you are facing armies or individuals or enemies that want to take you out. Trusting God can seem very passive when you have other options. Yet this is the declaration of Isaiah to Ahaz. Trust God. Don't trust your own plans. Don't trust your own schemes. Don't trust things that you think you can put together. Trust Him. Isaiah looks at Ahaz and says, listen, this God is sending a son to you. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This child is coming to us to be our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Trust him. Unfortunately for Ahaz and for Judah, Ahaz chose option two. He entered into an agreement, entered into an alliance with Assyria that did not work out in his benefit. And ultimately, Ahaz faced the same questions that all of us face. On whom can we depend in the midst of impossible situations? In the midst of impossible odds, who will we trust? Who are we going to trust when we get ourselves in deep, deep trouble? Now, these are pretty important questions, right? Because we are a people prone to get ourselves into deep, deep trouble. We are prone in that way. And listen, there are times where it looks like the only plans that can be trusted are our own plans. There are times where it looks like the only people that can be trusted are people in our own little circles. Trusting God can sometimes seem really, really scary when you're outnumbered and all the odds are against you, or when you are the target of every enemy that's out there. It can be very, very difficult. It's far easier to depend sometimes on ourselves because at least we know what to expect. At least we, we're, I mean, we're used to letting ourselves down, right? So we, at least we know what to expect when we trust in ourselves. Yet here's the point. 
This mighty God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of your trust now, and he will be worthy of our trust forever. So I want us to unpack three truths today that rise up from the name mighty God. But let me just say this. As I plan this, and as I walk through this, and as I put this together, this is all over the place. And normally, you know me, I, I, I try, if anything else, to, to have a pretty clear, concise, all together. And I was praying, Lord, did I, did I miss this? Did I get this wrong? This is kind of all over the place, and this really isn't like what I normally do. God, what's going on? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, when you think about Jesus as the mighty God, and think about all the space that that covers. As mighty God, Jesus in every direction. It covers a lot of area, meaning if you cover just a little bit of that, you're going to be all over the place anyway. So just follow with me today as we walk through this in a way that I pray will bring glory to him. So truth number one, he, Jesus, is mighty in his essence. He is mighty in his essence and who he is. In John chapter 1, the apostle John writes these words, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, God what the Bible says. And then John keeps on writing in verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word took on flesh, wrapped himself in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Let's listen to the words of Max Licato, who says, Stepping from the throne, Jesus removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered into a dark womb. He whom angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant, was birthed into the cold night, and then slept on cow's hay. He writes this, Mary didn't know whether to give him milk or give him praise, so she gave him both. Since he was as near as she could figure, hungry and holy. Meaning, he was both God and man. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of Christ. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. That two distinct natures, divine and human, were united together in one person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't two different people. He's not God and man. He is one person, the God-man. He is God in essence. He is God on the outside. He's God on the inside. Jesus is not like this cheap chocolate that we give our children during Christmas or Easter when you break it open and it's just hollow. There's nothing in the middle. Jesus isn't that. He is God on the outside and praise God, he is God all the way through. He is God in his essence. And the incarnation is the most extraordinary miracle in all of scripture. But also it's the most profound mystery in all of scripture. One pastor put it this way. When the word became flesh, he did not cease to be the word. The word veiled and voluntarily the word restricted the use of certain prerogatives. But God cannot cease to be God. He went on to say this. In other words, when the word became flesh, he did not commit divine suicide. God cannot cease to be God. So humanly speaking, at the incarnation of Christ, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable 
for us. The immutable, the unchanging one became mutable. And the fact that he grew and changed, the unbreakable became fragile. The loved one became hated. The exalted one became humbled. Glory was subjected to shame and fame turned into obscurity. And all of this and more happened when Jesus came into this earth. For Jesus did not just come as a human. He came as a baby. And only through the virgin birth could full deity and full humanity emerge and and be united in one person. That's the claim here. Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% man. And the math doesn't add up for us, but that is who he is. And we often define it as the virgin birth, but really it should be more defined not as the virgin birth, but as the virgin conception. For as far as we read in this book, there was nothing different about his birth. Jesus was born just like all of us were born. Jesus was inside the womb just like all of us were inside the womb. What made it different was the fact that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what the virgin conception shows us is two things. First of all, that salvation must come from God. It can't come from us. It must come from him. But secondly, only through the virgin birth could God unite man with himself. Just think of other possibilities here. Just follow with me. God could have, in heaven, created a perfect human being. Completely perfect, completely without any kind of falsehood or error or you know, any kind of blemishes whatsoever and sent him to earth to live an outstanding life. Now, we would look at this human and we would go, man, he's pretty outstanding, but we would have a hard time understanding how is he God? You know, or excuse me, how, how is he human? Sorry, how, how is he really one of us? He didn't come from us. He came from God. So how, how, is he, how is he human? How can he relate to us? Or God could have taken Jesus and allowed him to be born of a father and mother. Same picture, be born, live an outstanding life. But then we would say, well, how is he God? He's born just like we are. How does that make any sense? Yet because Jesus is fully human, meaning from the womb of Mary, He is able to sympathize with us. And because he is fully God, meaning of the Holy Spirit, he has authority over all things. Yet in this amazing picture, he can be known. In his essence, so in the being of Christ, the Son literally, eternally existed in perfect harmony with the Trinity, among the Godhead. The Son eternally determined to create. The the Son of God eternally determined to uphold and sustain us. Eternally determined to endure our rebellion. Eternally determined to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us. And then eternally determined to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to help us, to lead us always to life and never away from it. Therefore, just think about what we're doing here. We're not preparing, brothers and sisters, to celebrate the coming of a sufficient caregiver. We're not preparing to celebrate the coming of an adequate leader. We're not preparing to celebrate the coming of a capable God. We are preparing to celebrate the coming of mighty God who displayed himself as just that all throughout the Gospels and all throughout history. Every time Jesus showed up, even as a baby, he showed up in might and in power, and who he is. He is mighty in his essence as God. But then secondly, he is mighty in his endeavors. He's mighty in his acts. He's mighty in all that he did. All that Jesus has done and 
did do and is doing is done in might and power. Our mighty God, Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, He taught us, He healed us, He loved us, He died for us, He raised for us, also all of that after creating all of us. He is the creator of the world. And I would argue again that the incarnation of Christ is the most astounding miracle in all the Bible. It's the most astounding miracle, greater than the healing of all diseases that Jesus did in his life, greater than the calming of wind and waves, greater than the casting out of demons, greater than turning loaves of bread and and, uh, fish into rich crackers and fish sticks for all to eat. So greater than that, greater than forgiving sin, greater than the resurrection of the dead, greater than even creating everything out of nothing. The most astounding miracle in all of the Bible and all of the world is God taking on human flesh and coming to us. And every other miracle, so don't miss this, every other miracle makes sense because Jesus is God. Because God can do that, right? just makes sense. God can raise the dead. God can tell demons what to do, and they have to do it. God can look at nature and say, stop wind, stop rain, do it all, and it has to do it because he is God. And let me just place two truths before us today when it pertains to the endeavors of Christ and our lives and our hope and our trust in him. And they're not on the screen, but let me just give them to you. First of all, measure his strength by the power of creation. So measure the strength of Christ by the power of creation. In Colossians 1.16, it says this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus made it all. It even says in verse 17, In him all things hold together. And this is when it gets really, really good. Because if you're a Christian in this room, you have gone through things and you have gone through difficulties and you have gone through loss and hurts and pains where you said to yourself, I have no idea how I'm still together. It felt like I was unraveling. It felt like everything was coming apart at the seams and somehow here I am still together. And here's the answer. It's not you. It's the fact that Jesus held you together and he holds us together. That is what he does. He is holding us together. It's the beauty of who he is and what he does, holding us together. But think about this. He's the creator of all. Jesus told the sun to ignite. He told the rings to go around Saturn. He he made the earth or told the earth to be round and wet and dry and hot and cold and beautiful and desolate. Jesus spoke the legs onto an antelope. He spoke the tusk onto an elephant. He spoke the neck onto a giraffe. I have no idea why, but he did. And so the point is Jesus spoke and it all happened. And not only did Jesus create it, he sustains it. Every time my brain tells my heart to beat, it's because Jesus is saying, beat. Every time the sun rises or the planets revolve around the sun or the galaxy or the universe, it's because Jesus is saying, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. We live, brothers and sisters, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, because Jesus wills us to do so. He wills us to do so. So measure the strength of his power by creation But secondly, measure the strength of his love by the cross. 
Measure the strength of his love by the cross. Look at Acts 2.22 on the screen. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That's crazy things he's doing. Mighty, mighty works, mighty wonders, mighty signs. But then it goes on to say this in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plans of and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus who did amazing, incredible things, you killed him. But then it says this in between that, by the foreknowledge and the definitive plan of God. Meaning this was God's plan. This wasn't God's afterthought. God, you know, there, there was a time a long time ago, and I have a funny story about this, and I might just tell it, we'll see, where um, today we were able to GPS on our cars and in our phones, and they're pretty precise, but when it first started coming out, there was a, this amazing word that would happen a lot, recalculating, 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 and you could hear this over and over again, and I'll never forget, um, one time myself and Brother Curtis were supposed to be going to the, the courthouse, and Brother Curtis, he had just got this new GPS system, and he thought he was something else, and he said, you drive, I'll bring my GPS system, Pastor. It'll get us anywhere. So we put the, the address in, and this thing's taking us, and we get down to, I don't even know where we were, but there, here we are to the, the left. We're driving to the left is nothing but water, and this stupid GPS system is saying, take the left, take a left, take a left, recalculating, turn around. So we turn around, take a right, take a right. And I'm like, Brother Curtis, your GPS is trying to kill us. Like, what in the world is going on in this moment? But here's the beautiful picture. God wasn't in heaven when Jesus was being arrested going, recalculating. How am I going to turn this around? How am I going to use this? No, this was God's plan all along. All along, from the beginning. As the warrior God, Jesus would step into the battle and he would fight a greater battle than Yorktown or Midway and he would have a more decisive victory than Gettysburg or D-Day. The warrior God, according to Hebrews 2.10, the captain of our salvation, would take the field at Calvary. He would engage all the foes and when the dust had settled, an empty grave proved that he lives. Amen. Proves that he lives. And that stands as an eternal monument to El Gabor, our mighty God, our mighty warrior who's unable to be defeated, who is fighting for us. Brothers and sisters, I'm about to say this in just a second, but whatever comes into our lives, we can rest assured that it passed through him before it got to us. And therefore, there's meaning and purpose in it. If he were not mighty God, he could not have withstood the wrath of the Father for the sins of the world. And if he were not mighty God or God himself, he would not have been able to absorb the wrath of God for us. But Jesus did. He did for us. It's why he came. I read this illustration this week that was so powerful, and it said this. If I could have orchestrated the coming of Jesus, let me just stop for a second and say, I don't know about you, I'll admit it in church, there were times where I go, God, if I, I'd have done it differently. But I'm reminded if I would have done it, I'd have messed it all up. Because that's what I bring to the equation. I'm a human being. That, here's what I bring to the equation. I messed it all up. That's what I bring here. But if I would have orchestrated the coming of Jesus, how differently I would have done it. Let him be born in Alexandria, the intellectual capital of the world. Let him be born in Rome, the political capital of the world. Let him be born in Athens, the philosophical capital of the world. Let him be born in Jerusalem, the religious or spiritual capital of the world. But no, God's plan was different, for our greatest need was so much greater. Our need was not education, but redemption. Our need is not for social change, but for salvation. 
Our need is not for religious information, but for spiritual transformation. So love came down. And love came down into a cradle, and love hung on cross. And don't miss it. When we think about mighty God, we don't see might in a manger. We look at a manger and see a, a child, a human, a baby, but we don't see might. We don't see power. And then we look at a cross of a dead man hanging and we don't see might or we don't see power there at all. Neither place leads our minds or our hearts to celebrate might, but yet there he is. Our mighty God, our conquering hero for us. He's mighty in all of his endeavors and all that he does. And then lastly, he is mighty in his enthusiasm. He is mighty in his enthusiasm. And here's what we know. God so loved the world that he gave us, sent to us his son to reveal his mighty authority, his salvation, his humanity. Jesus is our mighty God. And here's what I don't want you to miss today. Don't miss this. Jesus is our mighty God. And in his authority, he is working enthusiastically for you. Jesus is working enthusiastically for you. Listen to Jeremiah 32. And this is, of course, about God, but this could be about Jesus because this is him. Oh, Lord God, it's you who's made the heavens and the earth. And by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Or think about Matthew 19. Where Jesus had just had an encounter with a rich young ruler. And the disciples were crushed and their, their thoughts of salvation had, were crumbled. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let me lay those two things um, right side by side for us today. Nothing is too hard for your God. And nothing is impossible with him. Nothing Nothing. If Christ can save you, which is your greatest need, he can meet every other lesser need in your life and mine because he is for us. Is there anything inside of his character that our Savior can't do? Is there any battle that he can't win for us? Is there any problem in your life or my life that's too big for him to solve? He is mighty God. And let me just say this. I don't know. I don't know. Every single person in this room, I don't know who came to church this morning for this exact moment, but here's what I do know. There is someone in this room or listening at home that right now you are facing an impossible situation or tomorrow morning you will wake up and an impossible situation will come into your life and you need to know and hear in this moment that nothing is too hard for your God. Nothing is too hard for your mighty God. What promise right now in the midst of your trouble do you have a hard time believing? Do you have a hard time believing the promise of Psalm 23, 6? That surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Are you having a hard time believing in the midst of your difficulties that goodness and mercy are actually following you? Do you have a hard time believing the promise of Isaiah 43, 2, that when you walk through the waters, they will not overwhelm you? When you walk through the fires, you will not be burned? Are you having a hard time believing the promises of Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for your good? For those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? Do you... You have a hard time believing the promise of Jeremiah 29, 13. Seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Maybe you have a hard time with the promise of Romans 8, 31. If God is for you, who can be against you? Or maybe it's Romans 8, 32. 
If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not willingly or freely give us all things? Maybe we struggle. Will God really meet my needs? Will he really give me all things? Or maybe we struggle with 1 Peter 1.5, that God is able to hold us and guard us until the very end. What do we struggle with? Nothing is too hard for him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are who he says you are? And let's be honest, there are times in my life when I don't, I'm I'm not able to understand what God is doing. There's times in my life where I'm like, God, what are you up to? Because none of this makes sense. let, Let me just take it a step further. There are times in my life and probably your life where it seems like God is slow. And he testifying today. Where God, it's like, God, this needed to be done like three weeks ago, and it's still not done. God, what are you doing? What in the world is happening here? God, where are you? And in these moments, we can either choose to trust ourselves to make unholy alliances with others, or we can choose to trust our mighty God who is for us. I'm not saying we can't have honest conversations with God and say things such as, God, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what you're up to. And I have no idea why. But God, I trust that you are mighty God and you are for me. Therefore, good is coming. Let me end this way. And I pray that this is kind of a way that we can end full circle. And if not, um, this is on me, not on the Lord. I want to give you a quote by R.C. Sproul that I pray will just bring this all around. And it's got a little bit more before we get to what you see on the screen, but he begins by saying this, a name is more than just a handy way of referring to someone else. It also gives us telling clues about the person's history and identity. The last name Carpenter, for example, tells us that woodworking is or was a prominent vocation in a family's line. Or the name Jacobson indicates that a man named Jacob was a patriarch in the family's history. Similarly, the name by which God is known tells us a lot about his character, leading us to what you now see on the screen, which is what's more, biblically speaking, the act of naming is inextricably linked to authority. In ancient times, especially, authority over someone or something was wielded by the person who chose its name. So Adam, for instance, so think with me about the garden, gave names to all the animals after the Lord made him from the dust of the earth. And this was the first time he acted to fulfill the mandate to exercise dominion over the created order. By naming the other creatures, Adam established himself as their Lord. So there's lordship here over this. And here's what I want you to understand. When God names something, he defines it. Whether that thing realizes it or not, whether that thing believes it or not, whether that thing accepts it or not, or whether that thing even likes it or not. When God names something, it becomes what God calls it. Therefore, if you are in this room this morning and you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, please hear this. You are who he says you are. You are who he says you are. You are not who you think you are. You are not who your circumstances are telling you are. You are not who the people of your past remind you that you once were. You are who he says you are. In fact, let me show you. We have one more um, slide I want to show you. 
You are who he says you are. In Ephesians 1, 4, you are chosen. In 1 John 3, 2, you are beloved and a child of God. In Ephesians 1, 7, you are redeemed and forgiven by God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, you are sanctified, set apart unto him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, you are called alive you're alive in him in John 15 15 you are friend no longer an enemy you are his friend in 2 Corinthians 5 21 you are righteous in Ephesians 1 3 you are blessed in Ephesians 2 13 you are near to God and in Colossians 2 10 you are complete in him brothers and sisters let me end this way. Let the mighty God define you. He has defined you. You are who he says you are. Let him define you. Or maybe you're in this room and you're a child of God, but you've gotten away from that. You've gotten away from his identity over you. Either number one, let him define you, or number two, let him change you. Let him to restore you back to who you are in him. Or maybe you're a third picture let the mighty God save you. Let the mighty God save you. If you're in this room or listening at home and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, let today be the day that you understand that you can't save yourself. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and you need what Jesus did for you for salvation. You need to understand that Jesus lived a life you could never live, a life of perfection. You can't, or I can't go an hour without messing up in some form or fashion. Jesus lived his life, no sin. He died a death we could never die, a death for the sins of the world. And he conquered an enemy that we could never conquer, death and the grave. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Let the mighty one define you. Let the mighty one change you or let the mighty one save you. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day of change. Today can be a day of becoming and seeing yourself for who you are in him. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into this time of, of consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we just rejoice in you, O oh God, as our mighty God. And Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are God. You are God, Jesus, on the outside and God on the inside. you are for us you are mighty in all that you are and all that you do but I pray today Lord across this room that you would help us to see ourselves for who you say we are may we in this moment let you define us or may we let you change us or maybe there's some in here today that are watching at home Lord may you let us or may we let you Lord save us save us Lord Finish this time. Have your way. Have your way, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.